This is French Tech Podcast, where you'll find interviews of tech ecosystem actors sharing their stories with La French Tech London. We hope you enjoy it. Bonjour, bonjour, and from London, welcome to our very first edition of the French Tech London Podcast. My name is Raphael Rouen, and I'm the president of the London chapter of La French Tech. You've heard it. This is our very first podcast series, and we indeed intend to come back to you here quite regularly with news, interviews, and updates from our community of French tech entrepreneurs, investors, and partners across the UK. We want to be your voice, amplify you know, key messages, report successes, failures, learnings, but also inform you on what's happening in our world. And also debates, because of course we want to have your opinions on various topics that are happening out there. So we thought being based in London and kicking the series in the midst of that crisis of COVID-19 that we obviously would need to address it from the angle of what we consider our strongest tech industry out here, FinTech. And of course, who else better to kick this off than our very own board member for FinTech, Helen. So Helen, I suggest you take it off and uh, welcome on board, people. Thank you so much, Raf. It's a pleasure being here today. And it's also a pleasure um, having as our first guest, Philippe Gelis. He's a CEO and co-founder of Comtox and a true European entrepreneur. So uh, delighted to welcome you, Philippe. Uh, and to kick us off, why don't you tell us a bit more about Kentox, how you came up with the idea, and also why you decided to dive in into this life of entrepreneurs? You, you weren't an entrepreneur as you started your career, so, so, so why, uh, why become one? So, hello everybody. Um, so to make a long story short, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but unfortunately I had to spend years as a consultant. So it was much, much less exciting than being an entrepreneur. And I would say that after some years um, working in, in different firms, uh, including Deloitte in the end, we started with one of my co-founders who was also uh, a consultant in Deloitte to anticipate, let's say, what was coming in the financial industry, which was a, a big wave of disruption. Um, I remember that time in, let's say, 2010, more or less, when we went to a bank branch. It was super old school, non-digital, non-transparent. So we say, look, there are probably many opportunities to build new businesses in that uh, industry. And I would say it was a bit of luck, but with a couple of our clients uh, in Deloitte, we identify really the non-transparent business of FX, foreign exchange. We understood that it was really non-convenient for businesses to buy and sell foreign currencies, to hedge foreign currency risk. And so we really saw the, the opportunity. We had, I would say, a, quite a B2B DNA with my partner, not so much consumer. And so we thought, look, it seems that it's an interesting product to build. There are basically nothing in the market right now. And even if at that time, no one was really speaking about FinTech, <clears throat> I would say it started probably 2013 or 14. Before that, it was, let's say, innovation in finance. So we saw the opportunity. We basically quit our job and we started from one day to another. I remember when we took the plane, the cheapest we found, from Barcelona, where we were living, to London, to really create and incorporate the company and start the business. So quite funny times, just after the, the 2008 financial crisis, when banks were still struggling a lot with their balance sheet. So it was nine years ago, so a long time ago. Uh, but uh, now we are, we are, I would say, quite a mature company uh, in the space. And we have as a, the opportunity and the chance to really meet amazing entrepreneurs. Uh, many of them have built huge companies. But we started almost all of us together. So we now have a very good uh, network of friends and people in the space, in London in particular. 
So, Philippe, thank you, thank you for that. And you, you did mention the 2008 crisis, which uh, now feels like a picnic when we think about the magnitude of COVID, you know, global scale, unprecedented type of crisis. We, we, we don't have enough uh, models or references to even comprehend it and deal with it. So how is COVID currently impacting your business? So to, to make a long story short, what we do is we provide solutions for businesses uh, to automate the management of foreign currencies and in particular foreign currency risk. So as you may imagine, basically, if our clients are impacted, we are impacted. So if they do less business, they need, let's say, less our services. But luckily, we are, I would say, quite well balanced in the sense that we have clients in many industries. So, for example, we have some of them in travel and they are massively impacted. But we have others in e-commerce, logistics and food and beverages. And I would say they are positively impacted. So in the end, we lose on one side. Uh, we make more business on the other. So all in all, I would say we are reasonably lucky of being impacted, but not that much. In our case, I would say we are reasonably resilient. But that said, the main challenge with that crisis is that no one really knows when it will end, when the, the economy will really start recovering. So it's really a massive unknown. 2008, in the end, it was a big one, but it was mainly focused on, or let's say, mainly impacting the financial industry. Uh, there was a lot of tension at that time, but the rest of the world, you know, was basically business as usual, meaning people were going to the restaurants, people were flying. Okay, maybe we are we had a bit of... Uh, of impact on the economy as a whole, but it was quite marginal. What we are living now is probably never seen, if I can, if I can summarize. So it's, it's a really different kind of challenge. And what you have to do is to make sure you survive long enough to stay in business. But the big challenge is that we don't know how long it will last. So we are all blind, if I can say it that way. Makes sense. And, uh, and indeed, it feels very easy to get drowned in negativity and pessimism in this context. But Crisis are also a way to reveal great leaders. And Philippe, you definitely strike me as one. I mean, you've come up with very innovative views on how to respond to COVID in a positive way. In particular, you mentioned your customers in the travel industry and you launched this initiative, Paid Forward. You also launched another one shortly thereafter around waiving FX fees on medical equipment and purchases. Could you tell us more about those two and also you know, why you came up to think about that and why you are in this different uh, mindset about COVID, trying to look for the opportunities and for the ways to help out others. That, that's so inspiring. Sure. So look, let's say we, we try to do two different things. First one is trying to, to help, even if it will be a relative help because we are a relatively small company. So given travel is, is quite a significant part of our client portfolio and given we travel a lot, so we had quarter in London, uh, we have a big office in Barcelona, but we have clients all over Europe. So we are constantly flying and traveling. We thought, look, what could we do to try to help our clients in the travel industry? And in, in Kentox, one of our co-founder uh, previously built uh, an online travel agency. So he knows a lot uh, the travel world. And we thought, look, in the end, we know that we will travel again soon, or at least as soon as possible. And so given we are well-funded and quite resilient, one simple thing we can do is first try to help the people that manage all our travel uh, to, to survive and go through the crisis. So first thing we did is try to incentivize people when they can or companies to pay in advance their travel costs for the coming quarters. So it's something, again, 
it's a drop in the ocean because our travel budget is significant for us, but meaning in the end, it's not that much. So it's a small, uh, a small thing we have done for, for our partners and for the travel industry as a whole. But most important was to bring more people in this initiative. And I think this is what in the end makes a difference. We also have clients in what I will name the healthcare industry uh, at a broad sense. So some companies in pharmaceutical, for example. So what we try to do is basically to offer them free services and, and free trading offering currencies, let's say to relieve a bit their, their cash position and also try to help these companies that are more important than ever. And maybe the last thing we have done, and we have not communicated that much, we have also done some, some donations to, to, to hospitals across Europe. And what we have tried to do is to spread it. So we, we have, let's say, clients in many markets, but we are strong in particular in the UK, France, Spain, Italy, Germany. So in all that market, we have basically chosen one large uh, hospital and we have done uh, small donations. So that said, uh, when you spoke about how we can embrace a crisis to in the end make it or, or, or get something positive from it. To be fully honest, personally as a CEO, I'm enjoying quite well these, uh, these times. Why? Because if we exclude the public health impact, as you may imagine, but if I think about our company, we were in a quite exciting moment because we have our, let's say, product and market fit, which is very clear. We have our sales organization, which is working well. So we are growing at a steady pace. But when you are the CEO at some point, you know, when you have this team which is well organized and the machine which is running well, it's not exciting that much, you know, then it's really about day to day, which is a bit repetitive, you know, and it's really more about your leadership team running the company than really you as a CEO making a difference. So when this started, what I tried to do immediately is think, okay, what we can do or what we can have as big, exciting target for the next 12 months to really put the company under let's say positive pressure, positive tension, and make sure that we go out much stronger uh, as a company and as a team. And we have done, I would say two or three different things. First, uh, this was an interesting opportunity to really test at a mass scale the work from home. So we are not the only company, it's, it's almost everyone, but we never really pushed a lot of the work from home in Kentox. We, we like being in the office, we like being together, and we like having this these dynamics when you are all together in the same in the same building and in the same office, but mechanically we had to to work from home all of us. So this was a quite interesting experiment, and I would say it's it's working pretty well. And probably that after the crisis we will put in place a, a broader work from home policy. Second thing, I really push my commercial team to be let's say uh, much more open-minded in the way that they need to change the way they sell. They cannot really meet their clients face-to-face -face anymore. It's over the phone, it's online. And so I try really to make it as a new challenge for them, a new way of selling and a new way of, of pitching our products. And I will say I'm quite amazed because even if the times are challenging, we keep on signing new clients and large ones, not at the same pace as before, but I mean, it's working pretty well. And also the third thing that I really, I, I, I try to, to push a lot is we are coming at a stage where we start being, I would say, a quite, let's say, a, a robust company in the sense that we are mature. We are mature, but not fully mature. And there are many things that when you are growing at a steady pace, you don't really focus that much on. So when you are growing fast, what you try to do is always focus on the top line, the top line, the top line. And there are many things like, for example, 
days of sales outstanding or these kind of things that are very much focused on, on the company finance where you don't focus that much in, in, in normal times. Where I've been trying to, to, to push my team a lot because what I want to make sure is that we go out of this crisis stronger than ever. So we want to be better collecting money from our clients. We want to be much more demanding in the way we, we spend money. So making sure that each, each item on which we spend money is really something which makes sense. So it's also an opportunity really to become more mature. And, and, and again, to be honest, I've been enjoying that last week quite a lot because it was really a shaky times, but, but also exciting times. And we are really get, going out of our comfort zone. So I like it a lot. That's an interesting spin. You see the crisis as a way to get out of your comfort zone. I really like that. Now, switching gears, I'd like to focus on the recent packages that have come up to help startups. Um, the first one from the French government, who came in strong with four billions and all sorts of measures. And uh, later on, the UK government, who came with a 1.2 billion pounds with different sets of measures. What did you think of those? What, what do entrepreneurs you may know uh, think about that? Was it enough, essentially? So that's a good question, and that's a complex one because very often, and, and in particular, if you are reading Twitter, many people are comparing one country to the other, really looking at the top line. So what you say is a 4 billion in France, 1.2 in the UK. But then when you really dig into details, you see that there are many differences. So in France, they have clearly gone massive and say, look, we want to save any company. We want to save any job. I'm simplifying a bit, but basically they have really gone massive. In the UK, naturally, it's a country in which, let's say, the government and, and, and public money uh, is not spent the same way. And I would say what they have done in the UK is probably not as massive as France. And also, it's not as easy to get because when you look at the details, you need to find investors and basically what, what the public money will do, governments, they will co-invest with these investors. So if you are a startup in a, let's say, short of cash, finding new private investors is challenging. And if you don't find these new private investors, you basically don't get the public money. So I will say, as always, if I can say it that way, the government in France has been much more social, if I can say it that way. So trying to help anyone with public money, the, the main target is to save as many companies and jobs as possible. And the UK one has been a bit more liberal. So we can help, but we will not save everyone with public money. Two different approaches. What's sure is that if you want my own opinion, it's important to save and to help tech companies and startups. But as always, I mean, it's a very, very specific and narrow industry, which is, let's say, in some way an industry where it's very Darwinist in the sense that, you know, you, you build 100 startups and you know that 90% of them will disappear. So personally, I'm quite convinced that public money first go, uh, should go first to more traditional company, to healthcare and to education and probably to the tech industry uh, as a last step. So I think what France has done is very good. I would say it's probably fair and enough. I mean, there are many more jobs and industries that are at least as important to save and that are much more important, I would say, for the mid-long run in the sense that tech is important, but tech is a very different kind of industry and we should not necessarily come first or get more than others. And, and, and if you look, you read a bit about the US, in the US it's even worse. There are many people in tech and even uh, VCs that say, look, you should not save what we can name highly Darwinist and speculative industries. And, and, and I quite agree with that. So fair to help tech, France, I think, has done a good job on that. 
but then it's, it's about the economy as a whole and not only about tech. Fair enough. And, and uh, so thinking more broadly, I mean, I mentioned at the beginning that uh, you're a true European entrepreneur. You're based in Barcelona. You have uh, teams in London. So you, are, you have this, uh, this broad view. I mean, do you think Europe is playing enough of a role in this crisis in terms of supporting startups and innovation? And should it? And maybe, maybe we can be controversial and say, no, it shouldn't. It's, it should be country by country. My I'm not sure if I will be controversial or not, but what shows that Europe is, is, is a castle which is half-built, if we can say it that way, okay? Europe works very well for uh, f- um, freedom of movement of people, uh, freedom of movement of capital, and, and some more things. But like it or not, um, Europe, it's still um, 27, if I'm not wrong, different countries, different economies that are collaborating on some things, and I would say reasonably well. Uh, I would say that fintech will probably not exist as it is today without uh, the European directive, the first one, the second one, which are really supporting a lot of the industry. But I think Europe is still way too immature to have a large scale and broad answer to really support the tech industry. Uh, we are still seeing, uh, as you know, a lot of friction between Northern and Southern Europe. Should we have, let's say, a single budget and package to support the economy, should we have euro bonds or no? So in that context, I would say tech is probably the last, the last thing that really matters, you know? Um, so should we go for more integration or less integration? That's a good question. I think that first we need to manage the, the Brexit process, which is still, uh, which is still uh, happening. After that, what, what should we do? That's a very good question. M- my view is that Europe is too broad. I was expecting the Brexit to be something helpful for European construction, but now with the COVID on top of that in the middle, it's really becoming challenging. So I don't have the crystal ball. Let's see, to be honest, but, but I think we are far from seeing a really integrated Europe. I mean, we are way too different, different languages, different culture, different way of, of, of behaving. You only see the way we reacted locally to, to the healthcare challenge. Uh, I mean, Philippe, now thinking of a world post-crisis, how do you expect fintech to fare out? Merely survival or on the contrary, a stronger role, perhaps partnering with big banks on domains they might handle better, such as SME lending? What's your view? I will say, and, and here I will be maybe a bit controversial, but this crisis is probably a, a healthy one for fintech. Uh, I think we have, we have gone a bit too fast and too far uh, in fintech in the last two or three years. Uh, we have seen maybe too much money uh, in, in, uh, invested. We have probably seen too many companies being built, which is also natural. I mean, you know, it is a, so the typical cycle where basically the market gets overexcited and then you have a crisis and many companies disappear and then then it's another cycle that starts. So there is no doubt that on the long term, there is a, a massive opportunity for fintech companies. The financial industry is, is the biggest by far, if you really look at, uh, at the GDP. And the opportunity to innovate, disrupt, and improve are, I would say, probably never ending. Or at least for the next 10 or 20 years, we will still see a lot of opportunities. Most things in fintech today have really been on consumer, retail, or let's say, SMEs, but we, I think we are still very early in the sense that there are many, many, many more uh, verticals inside the fintech space. Uh, so mid-cap companies, larger caps, capital markets, and many more. 
uh, where we will see a lot of innovation in the future. I'm quite convinced also that soon we will start having such a clear differentiation between, let's say, banks and fintechs. It will be more and more about technology in the, in the financial industry. Uh, but again, I'm, on the long run, I'm as bullish as I was for fintech, definitely. But we will see a real big uh, Darwinist process in the coming weeks and months. And probably that some verticals that, if I can say that way, made not that much sense or where in the end it was more about marketing than really technology and, and, and value. We will see a lot of, of let's say, dead companies or or, or M&A, but just because some large ones will buy some smaller ones for, for cheap. So still very bullish, but we will have a quite shaky times probably in the coming months. That makes sense. Maybe my last question uh, before we move on to the Q&A would be, uh, what's the next big move or next uh, exciting challenge for you uh, that you'll be taking on after uh, COVID is over? So we are still very, very, very focused on Europe. So 90, let's say 98 or 9% of our clients are in Europe. And I would say most of our clients to date were SMEs and mid-caps. So when I say mid-caps, I mean companies with revenue up to one or two billion. So now we are doing two things. We have developed a lot of new and very valuable technology for larger companies. So we start getting traction with larger companies. So really in the next two or three years, we will focus a lot, not only on small and mid cap, but also on large caps with very, very big names among the Fortune 500 or 1000. And the other thing is going out of Europe. So we are starting, uh, let's say, getting some little traction in the US, even if it's not really the focus, but in the next two or three years, also going out of Europe and becoming much more global. So it, it's, it's quite exciting, even if it's a very different dynamics. I mean, it's not anymore about building the product, getting the market fit and really building, building the company. It's much more now about management, getting the right people, managing the right team and making sure they have everything they need to really perform. So my job as a CEO is becoming very different, much less focused on, on building, creating and innovating and much more focused on scaling and managing people. So I'm, I'm learning and I'm sure I will learn a lot more uh, in the coming months and years in that sense. But again, very exciting moments. So we are basically now preparing for the rebound, even if we don't know when it will come, but it will come for sure and probably sooner than expected. Thank you, Philippe. So now I uh, would like to open it up to the Q&A for uh, the volunteers who joined us today. Uh, and so, uh, if you have a question, introduce yourself to Philippe and, uh, and ask your question. Thank you. Well, I'm going to ask a question then. <laughs> uh, Philippe, when um, you're based across regions, right? You have an office in Spain, you have an office in the UK, you have an office in France, I, I, I understand, any other places maybe. Um, what's been your experience uh, for a cross-border uh, company with the recent crisis, how do you manage your, uh, you know, your various teams across different geos? I mean, we talked about multimedia and Zooms. Any specific tips you have out there for people that are, you know, listening that would be interested in getting, you know, more um, good ideas, basically, on how to tackle that uh, communication sort of hurdle that we're all living through? Sure. So I have spoken with many entrepreneurs, two friends or people I know about that. And I would say they are really two approaches. The first one is when people start really 
working from home and no one is coming anymore to the office and let's say the, the day-to-day what you were used to is completely changing. Either you try to put in place a lot of new things to try to help people or you do the reverse and you try to change the day-to-day very, very little. And this is what I did. So we have a company which is now reasonably mature. Again, we are nine, nine years old. We have teams that are quite specialized and people that know what, what they have to do. So what we have really done and what I have done is trying to change as little as possible the day-to-day. So I'm communicating a bit more to the team than I was before just because I don't see them anymore in the office, in the kitchen, you know. In the, uh, so I try to over-communicate a bit. So I open a specific, for example, Slack channel, CEO Slack channel, where I communicate a bit more to the team and in particular to make sure they know that our cash position is strong, that we are robust, that we will go through this crisis, that investors are, uh, feel comfortable and really that they can focus on their, on their day-to-day without worrying about anything. The people team has done a couple of things also to create a bit of, let's say, of, of dynamics and fun because that's true that for some people in particular, the, the youngest ones are very often are single and living alone. Being at home is a, is, is a bit boring at some point. But we have not overreacted because I think that in, in that kind of moment where there is a lot of, of tension, I would say, if you overreact as a company, as a CEO, you generate in the end more tension and I think it's counterproductive. So when I see people starting opening uh, many more communication channels, implementing new tools for many things in the end, I feel that they break so much the typical day-to-day and processes of, of people in the team that this creates negative tension. So I try to do the reverse. We keep what we have, it works well. We add a bit more stuff on top, but we just, just try to make sure people can keep on focusing on what they know, just from a different place, which is home, not the office. But really, I trust the team will feel more comfortable that way than by trying to change everything. And, and to, to date, it has worked pretty well. And I, and I'm quite happy of the results. Hi, Philip. This is Matilda here. Um, a quick question. You said you left your job in 2008 because you saw an opportunity. Clearly, a lot of opportunities are going to arise from this crisis. And the question is, um, do you actually see new uh, potential recruitments and, uh, and new possibilities to hire people who probably were not that um, like easy to get beforehand? Is it something that you are currently working on? Something positive that you, you see coming out of this crisis? New talents? Definitely this crisis will be a big opportunity for, for companies that, that go through to then hire great talent uh, in a much easier and cheaper way. Cheaper in the right sense. I mean, not for cheap, but without spending so much money. In our case, we see we hired six people in the last four weeks. People just we had in the pipeline and that we thought, look, they're a good candidate. We are well-funded, so we, we, we will do the hiring as expected. Now we have frozen it a bit, but not necessarily for the long run. We are just waiting and seeing what's going to happen. But that's clear that in the coming three, six, nine, 12 months, a lot of talent will be available. And so for companies that are going through, it will be much, much, much better. Uh, one anecdote, I have just done my first investment ever as a business angel, a company that just starting now from scratch. Uh, what I told them is, look, I think your, your idea is good. It's a big, it's a big, industry, it's a big market. Uh, so there is definitely a big opportunity with a lot of incumbents. 
you will start now in a very lean way. You have time really to grow. You will not have many competitors coming because there will not be much money in the market. You will hire good people uh, for, for cheaper, let's say, and you will hire people you wouldn't have been able to hire in a normal environment. So it's probably a very good time to start now. I think that now it's really challenging for these companies that are at a stage of, let's say, Series A, Series B. So they already have a team a bit significant. They have been burning some money. They are now getting short of cash and they need money to survive while the product market fit is not necessarily already here. So this is really the kind of companies for which it will be very challenging now. But if you want to start a, a company right now, it's probably a very, very good time. Uh, I mean, the company I'm invested in, they were looking for, for a CTO for quite a long time. They were struggling a bit. They just found one and probably that the environment also helped, you know? So definitely for people that want to start businesses, don't be shy in doing it now. Great, thank you. That gives a, I'm sure it's putting a smile on everyone's face right now. Thank you, Philippe. Um, I'm Marine Caruba from the French Embassy. I'm a financial attaché there. And I would have a question um, to following up on your point concerning the resilience of the fintech sector and the fact that uh, some of them could uh, be, in, let's say, involved in a kind of Darwinist process. Um, the French and the UK programs to support the, the sectors uh, to cope with the crisis have put the focus on banks. Uh, do you think this is a sign that uh, fintech are, let's see, more, are, let's say, more or less uh, out of the process, and that the, those who are skeptical with the, the fintech uh, sector uh, could see the, there an argument to to say that we can count only on big players, or do you think that fintech could still play a role to fill the gap with banks in the near future? So that's a good question, and I think in the end, um, gov governments have been uh, pragmatic. So. If you look at, let's say, the market as a whole, banks probably own 98% of the, of the market, at least for SMEs and mid-caps, and, and, and online lenders probably own 1% or less. So definitely, if as a government you want to help, let's say, the, the market, the company and the people, you need to go through banks to really spread money widely, more than online lenders. But if I'm not wrong, I just read that uh, funding cycle in the UK or, or October, for example, in continental Europe, have been granted access to government money to also lend to their clients. So they are now becoming part of, uh, of the schemes. And I think it, it's a very good thing because they are in particular very good at lending very fast. So I think they are definitely part of the game. But that's true also that this, 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 this uh, crisis has also shown some limits in the sense that, for example, some companies usually small ones and, and very often startups that uh, bank with neobanks. They have discovered that most neobanks are not banks. So if you bank with a neobank, you cannot get this kind of, of public money just because a neobank cannot deploy public money. That said, I don't think it will really make a difference on the long run. I mean, the fact that people want great digital experience in financial services is here to stay. Uh, I was, I was uh, reading a, an article about France, oh no, Spain, sorry, and they never had that many elderly people registering for digital uh, access to banks than ever, because basically now all these people, they don't want to go to a branch. So the, the, the usage of digital channels by elderly people is, is, is rocketing now, just because it, it's necessary. So what shows that for 
for the large network of branches, the physical network, this is really a killer. I mean, after that crisis, I think the usage of branch will dramatically drop. It already dropped a lot, but at least they still are the older people still going to the branch. Now I think it, it will accelerate the phenomenon and, and I think branches will close at a really a much more rapid way than what we were experimenting before the crisis. So the opportunity will be the same on the long term and and online lenders will still have an opportunity too. Now, the next question comes from Lilian Poilpo, who is one of our volunteers. Philippe, uh, one quick question about the last few crazy weeks, about the way you work with your board to address the crisis and make sure that you know, the board, your team and yourself were coordinated. Oh, quite, quite simple. Um, what we have been doing or what I have been doing personally is uh, over-communicating with my investors. When I say over-communicating, I mean, Instead of communicating once a month, it's communicating once a week, at least during the first weeks. Then when we started really seeing that we were in a strong position to go through the crisis, uh, everyone started feeling quite comfortable. And I would say, uh, as always, you know, when you take a uh, venture capital firms, they have a large portfolio of companies. And usually in that crisis, they have some of them very little numbers that outperforming, benefiting from the crisis. A share of the portfolio, usually small one that's quite robust, and usually a, a bigger share that's struggling quite a lot. So when you are luckily in this small portion of companies that are robust and, 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 and resisting quite well, you know that quickly they will focus much more on the companies that are struggling. So I over-communicated a bit during the first weeks. Now everyone feels comfortable. So what has been said, my job is really to communicate well with my team to make sure they also feel super comfortable. But luckily, we are in a, in a quite robust position. You know, we raised some more money last year with uh, BNP Paribas, the French bank. So we are well-funded. We, luckily, we are a quite lean company, you know, so we don't spend really much money on marketing and things like this. It's mainly people. We always have this, we always add this lean culture we never burned a lot, so we are quite in a, in, in a strong position in that sense. Where, where it's challenging is really for companies burning a lot of money, or not that much money, but that we're in, needing, in need of cash for the coming, let's say, three, six, or nine months, because then rising will be very challenging. If you look a bit at the market, uh, I had a conversation yesterday, and it was funny because you have seen this massive fundraising, for example, of, of Stripe, of Robin Hood in the US, but I, I think that the the thesis here is quite simple. There is massive amount of money in venture capital firm. You know that venture capital firm are paid by their own investors to deploy money. And they know that with the crisis, uh, the LPs of the venture capital firm will probably decide to withdraw some money. So what some venture capital firm are doing is quickly deploying money on companies that are already probably the category winners to make sure they deploy this money before, let's say, the withdrawing from the LPs. So when you see this kind of massive run right now, it's probably just because the VC firm just want to deploy fast to make sure they will be able to deploy that money. So it's a mechanical reaction to the crisis. Uh, Philippe, thank you so much. I'm sorry I've got to jump out, uh, and then I'll let you uh, finish all this. But uh, guys, thanks for joining. I think it's going to be an amazing run. We have so much to say. Very interesting conversation. I'll talk to you all very soon. Uh, so maybe, Philippe, do you want to leave us with some uh, parting thoughts? I mean, you, what has struck me throughout this uh, conversation is you seem to be uh, taking a very calm view uh, about the crisis and uh, 
being very serene, you know, uh, looking at the bright side, but also you, you explain that you think it's really important not to uh, convey stress to the troops. There is no need for it. Uh, you sit as the role, as a CEO to you know keep things calm. You've uh, managing uh, also efficiently relationship with the board to also convey the same sense of uh, sustainability, durability of your business. So, any parting thoughts for us or advice, uh, especially directed at the startup ecosystem as they uh, as they uh, you know travel this. Uh, this storm. I, I would say in general that it's never really good um, to overreact in any sense when we have, let's say, a long-term plan or long-term vision. Uh, so in the end, when I say you should not overreact, neither to, to good or to bad news. I mean, this crisis is just another crisis. Uh, I'm old enough, I can say that way, to have already lived two, two crises, the 2000 dot-com bubble, even if I was a student at the time, and the 2008 crisis. Uh, every time it seems that uh, it's the end of the world, everything will be different. Uh, afterwards, we start reading a lot of, if I can say that, bullshit about the, the new world after this crisis, while being honest, probably that there will be some marginal changes, but nothing fundamental. So overreacting is never good. It will rebound at some point. You always have to find then, as a CEO in a startup, the right balance between being paranoid enough to make sure that you are preparing for anything bad that could happen and eventually uh, reduce some expenses or, or freeze some costs on, on one side, but also make sure that you are prepared for the rebound. So you keep on investing for anything that's important for the long, long run, being uh, R&D, innovation, also your, your commercial team. So for example, in our case, now that it's a bit harder to reach some prospects, we spend more time with the commercial team, training them, training them, and training them, because we want to make sure that when clients are back and when prospects are back, they are better than ever to sell our solutions. So in moments like this, it's always good to take a step back and really to, to take time to really think and, and what will happen in the next six, 12 months, and never be too worried about the noise, you know? Reading too much the press or, or watching too much the TV is not good in that moment. They, they are really trying to sell, let's say, to, to sell the negativity of the crisis to get more, more, more coverage. You know? So take a step back, think about the mid-long run, and really try to get out of the noise. And, and it's always the same in any crisis. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. We wish you the best and great success after the crisis. Continued great success. And uh, thank you, everybody, for joining. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Philip. Yeah, we look forward to, uh, to speaking to you again after the crisis. Uh, hopefully, you'll, uh, you'll still have time for us. We won't come and bother you like, too, uh, too quickly after, but uh, we're very much looking forward to it. I will, for sure. This is it. Thank you for listening to French Tech Podcast by La French Tech London. We hope you enjoyed it. Find more episodes on our website, frenchtechlondon.com, and on your regular podcast channels. See you soon.